Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen P. Wood. I'm an emergency medicine and critical care nurse practitioner, medic, and World Extreme Medicine Podcast host. And I'm joined today by Dr. Stephen Rush. Dr. Rush is a Lieutenant Colonel and Flight Surgeon with the United States Air Force. From 2012 to 2018, he was the U.S. Air Force Pararescue Medical Director, and he's currently the Medical Group Commander for the 106th Rescue Wing in New York. And one of his roles remains establishing standards for and training the U.S. Air Force pararescue medics. He is a radiation oncologist, but also has a fair amount of experience in austere and extreme medicine. And he's joining us today for discussion on the Thai Cave Rescue. Welcome, Dr. Rush. Thanks, Stephen. Great. Well, I, we are going to talk about the cave rescue, the Thai Cave Rescue but first, I wanted to uh, talk to you and have you tell us a little bit about what it is you do. Um, radiation oncology doesn't seem to be a, a perfect match for austere medicine. I think of you guys as kind of spending some time in, in dark rooms uh, with the lights off. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit about it, what it is that you do and, and your um, work with the pararescue um, you know, medics. So uh, actually, being a radiation oncologist is a good fit for WMDs, but we're not talking about that today. Sure. So uh, basically, my role as a pararescue flight surgeon is, uh, has, a, has four roles. One is uh, sort of an EMS director for operational medicine. In the military, we use the term operational medicine to refer to medicine that's done <clears throat> you know, on the battlefield or during rescues or civil search and rescue or humanitarian disaster response. So we use that term operational medicine. So we're an EMS director. We train the guys how to do it. We do oversight, quality assurance, process improvement. Another role we have is aerospace medicine. So we're flight surgeons. So because our PJs or pararescue men are, are uh, air crew and they, you know, they parachute and jump out of helicopters and stuff they are on similar standards to the pilots and other air crew. So we keep them flying or ground them if appropriate. And then we manage other things like the human performance program. So they're essentially elite athletes and have a injury rate similar to NHL hockey players. And uh, we, we manage the human performance program with physical therapists, strength coaches, and athletic trainers. And then finally, when needed, we uh, provide support and intervene for mental health issues. So those are sort of the four big buckets that we're involved in as pararescue flight surgeons. My role as the Air Force Medical Director was to revise and rewrite the handbook during uh, the Afghanistan War Operation Enduring Freedom and really try to modernize the approach, but also my interest having taught residents in the past was the medical education piece. So trying to figure out ways to optimize how to train, you know, young medics, special operations, paramedics to optimize care on the battlefield with both saving lives, but also maintaining quality of life, you know, whether it's a head injury and cognitive function or uh, rapid restoration of perfusion for patients in shock. So trying to bring the best of, you know, I'm from New York, so trying to bring the best of NYU, Columbia, Cornell, and Mount Sinai to the battlefield, you know, really raise the game of what we're doing 
And we have some amazing military physicians who are at the top of the level with the American College of Surgeons, American College of Emergency Physicians. Uh, and then I tried to, you know, fall in those footsteps and, and do that for our, our nation's, you know, people who raise their hand and volunteer. That's, I mean, these, these are uh, teams that are just doing some incredible work and, and taking some of the things that we're doing in the ER, in the ICU, um, and well beyond that into the field. Uh, what kind of training goes into to becoming a, a PJ, uh, especially the medical piece? So PJs uh, undergo a very intense assessment and selection. So one thing to understand about the special operations community is that the operators are highly selected. And ultimately, once they're selected by accident, it's not really on purpose. They have a, you know, they have a series of attributes that, that you know, absolutely make them a cut above. Uh, with that said, we exist to do small team missions, but also uh, a lot of our reason is to support the conventional forces. So uh, there's nothing special about special operations, but they're highly selected. Uh, everybody, you know, putting on the uniform for this nation is special from my, my perspective, but these guys are selected and then they have a two and a half year pipeline that includes a national registry paramedic certification. And then four weeks of what we call dirt medicine, which includes everything from environmental emergencies to battlefield trauma, what we call tactical combat casualty care, TCCC, and, uh, and then invasive battlefield procedures, including surgical airways, chest tubes, and rarely escherotomies, fasciotomies, things like that, and, and unfortunately, sure. field, field amputations. So that's, no, that's uh, sure. and, and, and uh, with the paramedic piece, they do advanced airway and some basic ventilator management, not super sophisticated, but uh, that's, that's the capability we bring to the fight. No, it's, it's interesting to hear, um, you know, what, what kind of training they have, what kind of background they bring. I think, you know, traditionally we think of, um, you know, that these kind of programs develop in the in-hospital setting and then are brought to the field. Really, I think we're seeing a shift in that paradigm where we're learning so much about trauma from the field. And that's being now brought into the civilian environment and into the hospital setting, you know, especially, you know, I, I'm from Boston. So, you know, tourniquets, um, you know, that uh, has had a resurgence and that's from our battlefield experience, you know, TXA, um, field amputation, a lot of these things are coming, you know, uh, from the field into our emergency departments, into our ICUs, uh, into the civilian EMS agencies. And that's a little bit of a shift in paradigm. And, and it just goes to show you just the quality of the individuals, the quality of the training and expertise that these, you know, men and women bring to this, uh, you know, to that organization. Um, I really, it's, it's an honor to speak to you about it. And uh, it's, uh, these are obviously individuals who uh, demand quite a bit of respect. Um, I know when they, um, you know, come and work in the civilian realm. Um, they're among the top uh, providers uh, in the country. Um, so I do want to uh, then, you know, let's, 
I do want to shift gears. Uh, I wanted to get some background, but I think what most of our listeners are joining us for tonight um, is to listen about, you know, the Thai uh, cave rescue. This is a, you know, a crisis that really had the world on the edge of its seat. Um, it was what I think everyone expected to kind of end in tragedy. Um, you know, it seemed an impossible mission. Uh, what was the, what was it that brought the, you know, terror rescue, the PJs to this? You know, it seems like a cave, cave rescue might not be, um, you know, that uh, specialty of guys and in, in, in women that are, you know, parachuting um, as their primary mode of, of transportation. So how did the PJs get involved? What was the expertise that they brought to this type of uh, crisis, this rescue? Let me give you two pieces of background. One thing yeah. is during the uh, two and a half to three years of training, the PJs are ultimately trained in airmanship, which includes parachuting out of fixed wing planes, helicopter rotary wing work, which involves rappelling, fast roping, hoisting up and down, climbing up rope ladders out of the ocean, uh, and then taking care of patients in the back of airplanes or helicopters. Uh, so that's airmanship. They're tactical specialists, so they shoot, move, and communicate. They're paramedics, as I told you, special operations paramedics. But the fifth piece they have is technical rescue. So they also have extensive training in ropes, high angle, confined space, structural collapse, swift water, vehicle extrication, the whole laundry list of, you know, when we see our rescue specialists around the city, whether it's police or fire, they do it all. So they cover all uh, pieces of technical rescue. And then they also have scuba. So they have ocean surface, but also scuba for recovery operations. So they are essentially master, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. And, uh, you know, there's sort of 80% in all of them. They're competent, but they're not super expert. So they're open ocean, open water, underwater divers. They're not cave divers. So, they bring a bunch of skills to this that I'll, I'll get into. But what happened was, you know, one of the things that I like to talk about when I speak to civilians that we, I don't think we do as good enough job as we can in the military is that most of what we do is humanitarian support and support of nations that are trying to be free. So when the Green Berets particularly, and some of the other special operations teams, some of the SEALs and some of the PJs, my guys have done this in Africa, you know, when you see these countries like Nigeria dealing with Al-Shabaab and, you know, these other terrorist organizations, a lot of what we're doing is trying to support these nations so they could stay free and separate from floods and earthquakes and all that other stuff that the military, only the military could respond on a large scale in a very organized way. A big thing we do is support these nations. So when the Thai government looked at the problem they had, uh, they were already in contact getting the British divers so there's a group of, you know, maniac cave divers that hang out and they go out and they rescue people all around the world. There's a very small group of elite cave divers who go out and get other cave divers. So some of those Brits were already called in. <clears throat> the Thai government, I think it went through the U.S. Embassy in Bangkok, asked for support. U.S. Air Force Power Rescue is the nation's elite Department of Defense Rescue Specialist. So we have teams in Japan and they were called out and they were there 12 hours later. And essentially 
the big thing we brought to the fight was that when the PJ showed up several days into this, the British cave divers were already showing up. The children were not found yet. There was no organization. There were people coming in and out of the cave without accountability. Um, there were people getting stuck in there. There was no plan to bring oxygen in or, you know, systematically figure out where the kids were. The PJs had the same experience as, um, as the Thai seals. They were basically open water divers. So overhead diving, which is cave diving is a completely different skill. It's sort of like riding a bike and parachuting. I mean, they have very little to do with each other other than you're underwater and you're breathing air, right? Compressed air. After that, you're holding lines. It's, it's murky water. It's cold water. Your head's bumping into rock. Uh, you're going through narrow areas. You're taking the tank off and pushing the tank in front of you. So I learned all this in a matter of two hours. We'll get to my role in a minute. But essentially, the PJs showed up and they did a couple of dives with the Thai seals and they realized they were, this was way over their heads in terms of training and skill. There happened to be one PJ who was a cave diver who ultimately participated, but the PJs and, and our officer, uh, Major Hodges, I encourage you to go to uh, YouTube and look up the MSNBC Thai cave rescue story. And they referred to our guys as air force, uh, and didn't really give them the due. They, you know, we would like them to get as PJs or pararescue men, but there's an hour interview with uh, Major Hodges and Mess Sergeant Anderson, and they go into great detail uh, of what they did. But essentially the PJs, uh, Major Hodges and Mess Sergeant Anderson showed up. They met with the Thai officials. They figured out that there was, that this was not the kind of thing the Thai were prepared for. They had, you know, civil search and rescue teams, they had paramedics, they had well diggers, but nobody was putting it together. So what, you know, what I'm proud of is that they put it together behind the scenes and then they gained the trust of the Thai leaders, including the governor, the two-star um, admiral who was in charge of the SEALs. And then ultimately, I think, you know, don't quote me totally on this, the minister of the interior who was a cabinet level position, I think ultimately had final authority or the governor did. But basically at that point, after a couple of days, our leadership, our young men established credibility and rapport with their leaders and then made all these recommendations. So the first thing they did was task organization. What was the role of the Brits? What was the role of the Americans? There were a gazillion Thai agencies there. What were they gonna do? And then create a plan, which is you know in parallel, look at digging like they did in Chile, and then look for holes or openings to the back of the cave where they could have been. And at this point, they're days into it, and they didn't know if the children were alive, quite frankly. Um, and then ultimately, uh, through a series of circumstances that you can go you know, see on a series of YouTube interviews, they found the children at like day 10 or 11. So you, got, <clears throat> you have to imagine these children were in a dark, wet cave. They were pooping and peeing where they were. They were licking water off the wall. They had a couple of light sources left, but they were mostly in the dark. And essentially, you know, one of the things I like to stress in telling the story is that the, my understanding is the soccer coach was a monk in training and he taught the children how to meditate. So these children, not knowing if they were ever going to be found again, because the monsoon rains had come up, came out of this psychologically intact 
and they, you know, they, they were a team and they meditated and they were uh, a strong, loving group of young people who survived this uh, in a remarkable fashion. So the, the PJs essentially, you know, one of the, one of the lessons I like to leave people is with, is we travel with whiteboards wherever we go and they just started doing whiteboard planning and what a whiteboard does, it gets everybody on the same page, especially if a lot of people have broken English. So that way there's no miscommunication. Everybody looks at it and agrees what they're looking at. You get buy-in from all the other teams and agencies, and then you allow the tie to get up there and the Thai local leaders to get up and take the lead. Uh, so that, and then ultimately everybody has ownership of the plan when they ultimately agree on a plan. So what they started doing right away is they started working multiple COAs courses of action immediately with the hope that one of those would find the children and ultimately the divers did find them. And then uh, the divers came out and they're like, we, you know, we rescue adults who know how to cave dive. We don't rescue children who don't know how to swim, scuba dive or cave dive. So we have no way to do this. And uh, Derek famously said, well, we're not going down without a fight. And ultimately, you know, one of the one of the attributes that I referred to is this optimism that we will succeed at the mission at any rate. And all he did was turn around and said to the divers in a perfect world, what would you want? You know, we'll just make it happen. And when they asked for things, they went back to the Thai government and they made it happen. And ultimately, <clears throat> they were able to devise a plan through about three or four different plans uh, which is the plan we went with. Um, and there are two other lessons that I want to leave the audience with that are things that you could use if you're on a search and rescue team, if you're a doctor or medic or, you know, outdoor adventurer in this world extreme me medicine business. There are two things that, that are critical to, the to not only the success but to the government signing off on the mission. Um, so you all know how it was done. So I, I'm not gonna go into that detail, but the two things I wanna tell you about are, are related to rehearsals. So the more that you read about, you know, if you saw the movie Zero Dark 30 with SEAL Team 6, or you, you, know, you read about the mystique of the Delta Force and these, what we call the tier one organizations, these are organizations that are just committed to counterterrorism, and all they do is practice. They're not pulled out to do administrative work or, you know, deal with rigmarole of, you know, the day-to-day -day work of being in the military. All they do is practice and rehearse. And when then they get a mission, as you saw in the movie Zero Dark 30, they might recreate the compound or that kind of thing. So first thing was the Thai SEAL went to local villages and they found children who were similar sizes and they made, saw, made sure that they had the right wetsuits, but more importantly, they got these full face masks that were positive pressure masks. So um, they were able to, to make sure that the, that the, the, the wetsuits and the masks fit and function properly. Then the divers, the, the PJs put everybody in the pool. I mean, I'm taking a lot of credit for the PJs. They were just one of many people, but they organized this thing where they went in the pool with the divers and they, um, pulled the children underwater, how they were gonna be pulling them. So they have a line that they hold, the divers, and they're, they're, they hold the line because of the murky water so they don't get lost. Excuse me. And then they're pulling the children passively because ultimately, and this has been in the New England Journal of Medicine, we put the children to sleep. 
we essentially anesthetized them. So, um, so they did a rehearsal so that this was the first time these divers were ever going to be pulling essentially sedated children or unconscious children. And they were pulling them through the, so that the first time they had to do it was not in dark water or cold water or these, these tight passageways with rocks sticking out, stalactites, stalagmites, and that kind of thing. So the first time they pulled kids was in a pool in a controlled environment. And they got the routine down of where on their body they were going to hold them and how they were going to pull them through tight areas. So that was number one. And they videotaped that. The second thing they did was a rock drill, ROC, rehearsal of concept. And what they did was they also figured out that they had a place, you know, the, the way that the rescue went was that they went through a series of chambers and sumps. So the sumps were like U-shaped water-filled cavities, like your toilet bowl. And the chambers were air-filled caves that they could go through. And when you see pictures of this, it's not like these were concrete flat areas. It was, you know, it was just dangerous at every level. So the first half of the rescue was a series of dives and then walking the kids on, on litters or in other ways through the caves and then swimming them again. And then when they got out to the last half, the PJs and the local climbing guy set up high lines so that they were able to put the Skidco litters on the carabiners and push them along longer distances. So they figured out they needed to forward stage um, oxygen air tanks so that the people in the chambers, we had people in the chambers checking the pulse oximeters of the kids to make sure they weren't hypoventilating, see if they needed to be bagged a little or whatever and make sure that the mass seals were good. Um, so we moved a lot of air tanks up there. And then the other thing they figured out was instead of putting compressed air and let's put in as much oxygen as we can. So instead of 20%, they got to 80%. So the idea was that if God forbid any of the masks leaked while the kids were underwater and realized the kids were sleeping, so they weren't going to pull the guy, but it doesn't matter. You can't come up. You know, once you go down, you're under until you get to the next chamber. So you're screwed. Um, so the idea was that if we gave them as close to hundred percent oxygen, we would supersaturate the tissue, particularly the brain. So instead of four to six minutes, you know, maybe God willing, they'd have like eight to 10 minutes if they got submerged, you know, they'd have more oxygen saturation. So that was one of the things. So basically when we got to the rock drill, we took, they took all the volunteers, all the divers, and they stood them up at what we call the entrance to the cave and essentially they walked a course that was string tied to lawn chairs and each lawn chair represented a chamber and the string represented one of the dives or one of the hikes. And they had everybody stand in order and then they took water bottles like little Poland spring water bottles and they put blue duct tape on for air and green duct tape on for oxygen. So each person walked to the chamber, left their bottle and came back and realized that you can't have two, you can't have multiple people going through these swim passages that it was only room for one. So they had to do it in an orderly way. And this way we rehearsed who was going to be where, when, and then the divers rehearsed how they were going to go so that they didn't cross paths. And we were able to leave enough time in between to, to shape the mission during the day and correct errors that we might find. So that was called a rehearsal of concept drill and they brought the leaders to see that. So between the video of the rehearsal and watching the rock drill, that was what gave the tie the confidence to approve the mission.
And that's, so it was already well rehearsed, you know, so there was no mystery. And again, this is the first time in history that these cave divers were rescuing children who did not know how to swim or dive. It's, it's an incredible story. And, you know, I, I got to see you talk about this at the FDNY, you know, medical special operations course um, and got to see the images of this. It just is incredible. I'm sure there's just this sense of urgency to just, let's just go, let's just, you know, let's just get these kids out. But the importance of what you did was so critical and it's the reason that you had that success. And, you know, this is where I think this is one of the most important take-home messages, I think, for, you know, people that are planning, um, you know, disaster planning um, or planning even for, you know, Ebola, for COVID, for pandemics, is that, you know, we need to do these proof of concept drills. You know, we, when I, I remember training for, you know, Ebola, um, and there are all these protocols in place and that people had spent hours in a room talking about this stuff, but no one actually tried to do it. And if you tried to do it, you would see that there are many areas that you're just, you're, they're just not gonna work. Um, and what the patience that you guys had to work that out, gain everyone's trust, trial the things that you were hoping would work, um, seeing how to make improvements on that, that's just such a critical lesson, I think, for anyone who does, you know, disaster medicine, operational medicine, or other, you know, or or day-to-day medicine operations. Yeah, you know, let me add one other thing for my talk yeah. that I think is pertinent to the audience based on what you just said. Another thing they did, we have two slides devoted to something else that we did. Uh, again, you're doing something in unknown, right? There's uncertainty, there's unknown procedures, unknown outcomes is that we have one slide that listed, not all of them, but listed most of the risks. So it could be the child's mask comes off, the child's oxygen tank, you know, regulator gets screwed up. Um, uh, They hit, we had power lines, right? So there's electrocution, there's losing the line of the divers losing the line and one did, and it took them 20 minutes to refind it. Uh, Because there were multiple passages. It's not like there was just this one way. And that was why it took them a week and a half to find the kids. Um, So we went through a page of the risks and they just sat there and they all wrote down everything that any, and you know, I, I wasn't in the room, but they had 20 or 50 people calling out, you know, hit your head, lose the line. Uh, the, the diver passes out, you know, whatever they thought of, all the things that could go wrong, which is what we do in, you know, combat search and rescue. And then we had another slide that had all the solutions, the mitigations to each of those problems that you could imagine. So that's something else that, it, you know, as you bring up, how, how can we apply this to uh, Ebola or some other medical thing that we're not thinking of yet? It's just follow these basic things, get the whiteboard out. Think of all the, you know, come up with a plan, come up with multiple plans, pick the one that's best that everybody agrees upon, come up with all the things that could go wrong, come up with all the mitigations to prevent or mitigate what could go wrong, and then how to treat that problem when it comes up, and then rehearse the crap out of it, and have everybody agree where they're supposed to be when, because there was no communication once they were back past the third chamber, there was no communication with any of these people. And the other thing I want to give full credit and I want to encourage the audience, if they don't know about it, um, you could look it up and put it in the show notes. 
one of the things that the British asked for was, was two Australians, Richard Harris and his uh, dive buddy. Richard Harris was a cave rescue diver, and he's also an anesthesiologist with expertise in pre-hospital retrieval medicine in Australia. And he was really the linchpin of this. So I have a podcast. If you go to PJ Medcast, I cover a lot of missions, including these kinds of rescues and also military stuff, but I also talk a lot about a lot of the medicine we do in austere environments and you know why we pick certain protocols and things like that. But if you go to pjmed.lipson.com or Lipson, L-I-B-S-Y-N, and look up Thai Cave Rescue, uh, I actually have a conversation with Richard Harris I haven't released yet, but we have a five-part series with Derek Anderson, and it's amazing to listen to. But the bottom line is Richard dove back. He examined all the kids. He picked doses of medication for them. Uh, I, I got a call back in the States. One of our flight surgeons is a professor of pediatric anesthesiology at Denver Children's. So we double-checked doses. We provided a couple other inputs. But uh, in the end, Richard Harris needs to get all the credit for essentially taking the risk of putting these kids to sleep, having non-medical people, except for my PJs, monitor them and then, you know, resuscitate them if necessary in the chambers and at the entrance to the cave. So I got to say, this is the World Extreme Medicine podcast. I cannot stress enough what a medical hero Richard Harris is for the world to be watching. At least I was like cowered up in my house and they were texting me as each kid came out and they started. And then I started realizing that the whole world was watching this. And I'm, you know, I was focused on the whole thing. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is the most high profile thing, you know, I've ever been involved in. And, you know, God forbid, I, I you know, it is a miracle that all the kids got out. It is just a flat out miracle. And uh, again, I just want to reiterate, Richard Harris has a book he just published uh, and I encourage everybody to support him, buy it. The guy is unbelievable. He's got the, uh, the guts of, of a Navy SEAL and a Ranger and a Green Beret put together, but he was a great physician. In the end, he was a great physician. And I think uh, you guys should, if you guys haven't interviewed him, you should definitely get Richard Harris on your podcast. He is amazing. And to hear his story from a extreme medicine perspective, he was thinking about doing prophylactic myringotomies, you know, puncturing the eardrums of the kids in case their eardrums were going to burst and ultimately chose not to do it. But, but, but this physician is amazing. He's, he's the bravest physician I've ever met in terms of taking risk, making a decision and, and making a great medical decision. So I, I, that's something I really want to leave you with is, is get his book, support him, get him on your podcast. I could link you up by email. He's, he's just an outstanding physician, uh, you know, perfect for the, 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 the cloth of extreme medicine. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember hearing the stories of, you know, his preparation for this and it's just, there's no textbook for this, right? There's just, you're just, you know, banking on your experience, your knowledge and just becoming creative in, in your, processes on how are we going to approach this? What is, I need, you know, how do I think of every little aspect that I need to think about before we go in and, and do this rescue? And, and it's just, it's really pretty amazing, um, you know, how this came together and the success. And this, it's just an incredible success story. Um, and and uh, I'm sure it feels good to be, have been part of that. And in whatever way, um, you know, you were part of that, 
uh, to be part of that rescue team is just going to be one of the best experiences of your life, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of many highlights. Uh, it's just an amazing opportunity to support these incredible Americans who do unbelievable things on behalf of the nation. So even here back home, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Harvey, all the images that you see of the Air Force helicopters hoisting people from their roofs. Those are the PJs going down to, you know, save Americans here at home. All the work they did in the Haiti earthquake uh, with, you know, collecting all the Americans and then supporting the urban search and rescue teams, working hand in hand with Fairfax to uh, extricate people and go into the rubble piles. So it's a whole, and then finally the uh, manned space flight. So if that, like SpaceX just came back, if any of the capsules, Boeing, SpaceX, or NASA come out more than 50 miles from a ship, the PJs are going to parachute out of the C-130s and then set up a 14-foot raft uh, platform hooked up to the capsule and then pull the astronauts out and care for them uh, until they can get picked up. So whether it's manned space flight, uh, hurricane rescue here in the States, supporting other allies and partner nations like Thailand to help them pull off the impossible. Uh, and then, of course, uh, supporting our young men and women who go to war on our behalf. Uh, I am, you know, I'm lucky to stand behind these guys who are, you know, just great Americans and great rescue specialists with some uh, impressive medical skills. Yeah, it's an incredible story. And I want to thank you for taking the time to share it with us today. Um, I'm sure people are going to want to check out your podcast, PGA MedCast, um, to hear more of this story. Um, I want to thank all of uh, our listeners for joining us. Uh, if you like this podcast and are interested in more content, uh, make sure to visit worldextrememedicine.com for links to more podcast content, uh, some of our live content as well as news and updates, um, the wemcast.podbean.com for podcasts like this one, as well as the wem.academy website for podcast videos and live sessions. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to keep up to date on content and news from the world extreme medicine uh, world. And thank you so much uh, again, Dr. Rush. Uh, this was a, an amazing story. Uh, it's uh, it's a success story that I think held the world captive for, you know, uh, weeks. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, impressed by uh, just the effort that went into making this a success. And, and you mentioned those key take-home points that are just important to even just daily, you know, our daily mission of medical care. So thanks again. Um, everyone, please stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time on the World Extreme Medicine Podcast.